continue, continue reading in Exodus, and now we're in chapter 6, and we'll look at the first eight verses in chapter 6. Actually, 6 to 9. Children, here are your questions for this evening. First, what was God's message to Pharaoh? Two, what did Pharaoh do to the people of Israel when he heard the message? Three, was it hard for the Israelites to understand why this was happening to them? Four, God promised he would deliver his people from Egypt, and he always keeps his word. But the blessings of God's promises his people don't always come how and when we want them to. What can you think of that will help when we are confused by God's mysterious ways. Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of God. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we do thank you for your word, and Lord, we know that your word is truth and your word is mighty. Lord, we pray that you would help us tonight to receive your word for what it is, not the word of man, but your very word. Now, as we turn to the preaching of your word, that is man's feeble but ordained attempt to preach that which you've given us in your word, we pray that you would bless it and that you would use it and you would sanctify the words from this pulpit, that you would use them to impact each soul gathered here tonight. Speak to us, we humbly ask, as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever pray for something in the exact opposite of what you expect happens? I remember one time I was very specifically asked to pray for a meeting between brothers. And they asked that it would be a peaceful meeting because it was possibly a volatile scenario. Well, I prayed and came to find out the next day that not only did the meeting not go well, it ended up with a physical confrontation, a physical conflict with the brothers. And I was somewhat surprised. I'm thinking to myself, that's not what I prayed for. I'm not sure what the purpose of it was, what the final conclusion of it was. There has still been no resolution 
but nonetheless, it went the opposite way that I thought it would go. Maybe you've hoped for something. Maybe you've really looked forward to something, or maybe you even did something that was, in your mind, the right thing to do, and then things went wrong. Things didn't go the way you hoped they would go. Things became disappointed. They didn't go as planned. They didn't go as you imagined. And sometimes maybe you experience where something you had planned that was supposed to be really good ended up being in a disaster. If you can relate to either of those things, you can relate at least a tiny bit to the experience of Moses and the people of Israel. I don't think that they were expecting uh, to happen what happened. We're going to walk through the narrative tonight of this whole passage, and we're going to make some observations. But I want you to make some applications. As you listen, and as we've read the passage, I do want you to consider uh, what Moses does, what the people of Israel do, even the way Pharaoh responds. And put yourself, as it were, in their sandals. And ask yourself, is there anything in me positive or negative, but I think we need to look closely at negative. Is there anything in me that, that reflects anything at all of this character Pharaoh? Or is there anything in me at all that reflects the way that Moses responds to what's going on here? Is there anything in me that reflects the way that Israel responds to what God does here? And we'll make those applications and take them home with us, I trust. But again, more importantly... More importantly, I want you to see the wise, sovereign hand of God. Watch for that most closely. That even in situations that seem dire, God is still sovereign. And so when you look at things in your life, if they don't go well, even when you don't respond the way that you ought to respond to God, that you would turn to him. And in the situations that aren't good, that you would still seek him. And in situations where you've sinned, that you would repent before him and ask him to change your heart and your attitude. I want you to rest assured that God doesn't change in his ways or his wisdom towards his people. We'll see that. And he doesn't change towards you either, even in the hard stuff. Well, the people of God had cried out to him and he heard them. He said that he heard them and he gave them attention. And he promised them the long-awaited deliverance that he said so long ago would happen. He had told them that they would go into bondage for nearly 400 years, but that he would bring them out of bondage. And now in time and in history, in, in time and in this place, God responds to their cry in their misery of slavery. And at first, things seem to be going well. Moses goes to the people and he tells them that God's going to deliver them. And if you remember from last time, the people's response to that was that they fell down and they worshipped. They were delighted that God was going to deliver them. And now the time has come for Moses and Aaron to set off and go and do what they were called to do, and they're called to confront Pharaoh. So here's the picture. You have, you have Moses, who's come a long way since he tried to deliver the people by his own hand, way back when he was a young man, well, being 40 years old. He's come a long way. He's begun to understand, at least to some degree, that he's not God's deliverer, that God is the only one that can deliver his people. Now, he's called to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and tell Pharaoh that God says that you have to let his people go. 
I can't imagine the courage that it would take for him and Aaron to do this, but they do get to Pharaoh's court. And they come to Pharaoh not with a proposition. They don't come to him with a suggestion. They don't come to him with a request. They're not, they're not asking him to come to a negotiation table. They go with a command to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Let my people go. Simply tell Pharaoh to let the people go. There's no, there's no bartering here. There's no negotiation here. This is a command. And Pharaoh received it as such. He knew exactly what they were saying. There's no back and forth here. And so that's the first statement. Let the people go so that they might have a feast in the wilderness. Now it seems as though there was precedent. There were times when Egypt would actually let people go into the wilderness to worship their gods and then come back. But when they go to Pharaoh and ask to let God's people go out, his answer is simply no. Not going to do it. The command hits Pharaoh in two places. The first thing it hits is his pride. Who are you to tell Pharaoh, God on earth, that some God that I don't know is telling me to let the people go? So, the first thing it hits is his pride. The second thing it hits is his wallet. There's an economic issue here because if he loses his slaves, even for a couple days, it's going to affect his economy. And so he's very concerned about that. He's predictably obstinate. God had said that he was going to harden his heart. Here we have more than just a no. This is defiance against Yahweh, the one true and living God. It's one thing to say no. It's one thing to push back on Moses and Aaron. It's another thing to defy God. And yet in his delusion, and I'm not sure how this works, in his delusion, Pharaoh somehow thinks that he's a god. But he's not going to take a command from another god. This is, as it were, a battle of somebody who thinks he's God and the real God. And remember that part of depravity sometimes makes man set himself up as God. It's something that we all have to be broken of and avoid like the plague. But Pharaoh's response is basically, why should I? Why should I? You want to serve your God, but you will serve me. Am I not a God? Well, Moses and Aaron continue as ambassadors of the mighty God, but it seems as though they step back. They step back. They back up. They soften the command. They backpedal into a request. Please, let us go. And there's some question there if, as if Pharaoh doesn't respond to this weakness that he sees in them. Please let us go. Now there's some confusion in what Aaron and Moses request of Pharaoh at this point. We just want to go for three days. We want to go and have a feast. We want to do these other things 
it seems as though they're, they're equivocating or, or changing what God actually said and, and softening it. Now, there certainly would be sacrifices. They say we want to go and sacrifice to our God, Yahweh. And they throw in here basically that it won't be good for any of us if you don't let us go. It won't go well for you, Pharaoh, and for the Egyptians, but it also won't go well for us. So if you're smart, it's no longer God has commanded, but if you're smart, you'll let us go and all will be well. Well, Pharaoh's having none of it. He's having none of it. In fact, his response is, to give them greater burdens, certainly unintended results, certainly not what the Israelites were expecting, not from the people's standpoint. Things took a dramatically difficult turn. It got a lot worse. But Pharaoh has a strategy. He's going to break the people. You might ask, well, why didn't he just kill Moses and Aaron? Probably he doesn't want martyrs. Instead, he puts the people to harder work, and it seems that there's a strategy here to get the people to turn against the leaders. I thought to myself that Pharaoh is as clever as the devil. The devil often works that way, works behind the scenes, manipulating. The devil as as clever... Pharaoh is as clever as the devil, but he's just as foolish to attempt to fight against God. Nonetheless, he he makes the work a lot harder. That seems to be Pharaoh's strategy to break the people, but what's really going on here is that God has a counterintuitive plan to build his people's strength, to show them that not only did they need to be delivered from slavery, and they would be, but to make them realize that their situation is impossible, increasingly impossible. Their only way that they could get out from under this burden of slavery and this impossible task to continually make bricks without straw is by God's hand to deliver them. You can see the problem right away. The people are bearing this terrible burden, and so they turn on the messengers. They turn on Moses and Aaron. They question God's word, actually, but they challenge them. And sadly, it appears that they forgot God's long-standing promise to deliver them. Now, before we get too critical of the people of Israel, we should ask ourselves... What would we do in their situation? What do we do when things get tough? What do we do when life gets complicated? What do we do when it feels like things are just getting heavier on us? What do we do? Do we complain? Do we turn on God? Do we turn on his word? Do we get disgruntled with the way that he works? Do we even get disgruntled with his word, because it's not working the way that we think it should. All those things seem to come into play here with Israel. And it starts to get very intense under these burdens, and they, they turn on Moses and Aaron, and they even curse him. They even say, would God judge you? 
And so it's interesting because while they're, they're resisting God's word, it's the focus is on the messenger. Well, Moses asks that question that we might ask ourselves when we go through tough situations or when we're called to do something and it doesn't go the way we should. Why me? Why did you send me? Why did I have to be the one to do this? Why did I have to be the one to do that? It's not going well and this has become miserable. Why me? I thought I was doing right and everything seems to be going wrong. It's sort of that, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. Well, this time when Moses goes to God, God doesn't get angry with him. He has before but this time he gives him a powerful answer and he simply says, I will do this thing. And Moses needs to recognize that ultimately it's not about you, Moses. It's, it's about what I'm going to do. I am the Lord. I am God. I am, period. And I am the God of my people. You may have noticed that when God says this to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. He's the same God, but now he's revealing himself in a more spectacular way. You, Moses, and the people of Israel are going to see me in a new light, and my very name will project that to you. I am God. I am totally transcendent. I am the mighty God. We try to capture that. We try to capture the I am. Our catechism tries to capture it by spelling out God's attributes. And in the question in our catechism, what is God? I think it's appropriate to read it this way. So the answer to the question is, God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, in his being, power, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. But if we read that linear, I think we miss something. And I know I've done this here before, but here's the way that I believe that we're supposed to read this. Listen closely. God is infinite in his being, in his power, in his wisdom, in his holiness, in his justice, in his goodness, in his truth. God is eternal in his being, in his power, in his wisdom, in his holiness, in his justice, in his goodness, in his truth. God is unchangeable in his being, in his power, in his wisdom, in his holiness, in his justice, in his goodness, in truth. God is all in all. He's the source of life. And he's absolutely sovereign. The confession says, God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs, all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence. That's our God. And Moses needed to be reminded that that was his God. And Moses needed to be reminded that that was Israel's God. Israel needed to be reminded of that. And Pharaoh needed to see that. But Pharaoh's blind to the truth. But it's this God that says, you might be doubting now. Things are going bad now, but watch me and you 
will see and the people will see and Pharaoh will see and Egypt will see and the world will see I am. And the people will see the mighty hand of God. Watch me, says I am. Well, there's the big picture. And so let's jump from our narrative here in this picture of deliverance and the trouble that comes initially before the deliverance happens. The big picture, I think we can see this pointing ahead to the greater deliverance from sin and bondage to the devil. Note this, Pharaoh, note this, Satan, that God never negotiates, never negotiates with the powers of darkness. And when God vowed at the very outset of the fall, he promised to send one who would crush the head of the serpent. And when it happens, things don't seem to go the way that people thought it would. This man comes born in a lowly estate, lives humbly, and then ends up being rejected and then suffering and then ends up being crucified. How much worse can it get? How much worse can it get than that? The deliverer, the Messiah, the one who we thought was the Messiah, the Son of God, ends up hanging on a cross. But it's in doing just that that he crushes Satan's head. And deliverance comes when he rises from the dead and he, he secures deliverance for sinners. And that ultimate deliverance is accomplished in earnest. And he saves his people. And then his people get saved. But things don't always go the way that we think they're going to go, do they? We think, some people think, anyway, Jesus never gives an indication that life is going to be smooth. But God saves our souls and brings us into his kingdom, but our lives can sometimes become very complicated, very difficult. Things may not be going great in life. Maybe now things aren't going so well for you. And if they're going well for you now, perhaps someday they're not going to go so well. I don't mean to be cynical. I just want to be realistic. But what we have to remember is that God is sovereign and he loves us deeply. And even our suffering and even our struggles, even when it seems like our burdens are too much to bear, he's got a purpose in it. One of our people in our front load group with reference to this passage said, we often blame people and circumstances for our trouble instead of going to God in prayer and remembering his sovereign control in our lives instead of trusting in his timing and plan. And it's not to say that people can't factor into our difficulties in life. It's not to say that circumstances can't be extremely difficult, but it always is helpful for us to stop and ask ourselves, and I guess between, uh, before the throne of God as we pray to ask God, what is, what is this about? 
We may not get an answer, but what is this about? Whatever the case is, whatever the case is, above all, even in our suffering, we have to see that God has a purpose. There's a passage in Romans 5. I want to read it for us. Beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What does suffering produce? The Israelites did not see that at the time, and it's very difficult to see in the midst of burdens and trials. But this is to remind us that even the difficult times for us are to produce in us more godly character with all the things that Paul spells out here and should ultimately set our hope on God. And so here we are, God's people. We have a life to live, however long it may be, however easy or difficult it may be. But God is doing something in our lives, refining us, teaching us, teaching us endurance, teaching us to grow in character, making us set our hope not on this life, but on the life to come. That's true for us as individuals. It's true for the church. It may seem like things aren't going right or well for the church in the naked eye. But God tells us that his kingdom is advancing and that even the gates of hell will crumble at the advancement of his kingdom. It could get worse for the church before things get better. But God's promise is true. An ultimate deliverance comes. We're delivered now. We'll finally be delivered when we step into glory. The kingdom of darkness seems so powerful. But it's poised for collapse. And that's what's going on here with Egypt. Poised for collapse at the mighty hand of God. And that's just one little nation at the hand, at the word of God, hell itself will collapse under itself with the prince of darkness doomed, bound, destroyed forever. We sing, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And God keeps that word. He kept it to Israel he keeps it for his church, and he keeps it for you, and he keeps it for me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great deliverance that we know in Christ. And we can't even really begin to understand the burden that our Savior bore in order to secure that salvation, that deliverance, that exodus for us from our sins to bring us into your kingdom. But Lord, we know that you had a perfect plan and a perfect purpose for the salvation of our souls. 
Lord, we know that you've taught us in your word that in this life there will be trouble. As surely as sparks fly upward, man is born to trouble, even your saved people, even your precious children. And Lord, some of us will bear great burdens in life, and others of us, not so much. But whatever the case is, Lord, we know that you are working in us what's pleasing in your sight. And so we know that whatever comes our way, Lord, it's a part of what you're doing to make us more like our Savior Jesus refining us, purifying us, teaching us patience, teaching us endurance, constantly causing us to set our hope on what you're doing in our lives ultimately and what it will be like finally when we step into your presence to be finally delivered from this body of flesh. Lord, we know that it's all accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in you, our trust is in you. We give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name.